So Advent, if you don't know what Advent means, Advent means the arrival. It means we're celebrating the arrival of Jesus. So we're going to have two sermons on, sermons on Advent. We had a sermon on the second Advent last week. And it's just a time where we talk about different facets of the arrival of Jesus. Like next week on Christmas Eve, we'll talk about his birth, that he arrived, that the Son of God was born in flesh into human history. Last week, we talked about the return of Jesus and what that means with the new heavens and the new earth and the perfect city of God. Today, we're going to talk about the prophecies of Jesus, that throughout your Old Testament, throughout your Bible, there's over 300 prophecies about Jesus that he would perfectly fulfill. They talked about where he would be born, what city, what family he would become coming from, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would suffer, that he would die, what kind of king he would be. Thousands of years, the prophets of God were getting the people of God ready for the Messiah of God, the Son of God. And I pray that that builds your faith. Those are, this is one of the things, the prophecies of the coming Messiah is something when I first came to Jesus that built my faith dramatically. I was amazed that when we read Psalm 22 that that was written a thousand years before Jesus was ever born and that David is through the power of the Holy Spirit, speaking the words that Jesus would speak on the cross, like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And they saying things like, they will pick my hands and my feet, and they will cast lots for my clothing. Those prophecies were getting people ready so they could see Jesus as the Messiah, and that should build our faith dramatically. 300 prophecies that he perfectly fulfilled with his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection could, should cause your faith to lead to new levels. It would be like for Jesus just to fulfill eight of 300 of those prophecies. Let me give you an example I read of in a book. It would be like filling Texas, which is like its own nation. I don't know if you've been to te Texas. It's a peculiar land. It's a funny place out there. It is a funny place, man. A Bostonian, I felt like I was on another planet. But you take all the silver coins, you fill up the whole state of Texas, right? Side to side, every boundary filled with coins. Take one of those coins, mark the coin, toss it into Texas. Then take a blind man and tell him to find that coin. Those are statistically the chances of Jesus by chance fulfilling all those prophecies when mathematicians and everything get into that. They're basically saying it's non-existent. Is there a small engine plane flying over the church right now? They're saying those are the statistics of Jesus fulfilling every one of those prophecies. You know what that means? That means that Jesus is Lord. And that God ordained that he would perfectly fulfill everything. Nothing is by chance. Let me tell you something about your life. Nothing is by chance. It says not one bird falls from the sky that God does not know about. No one. Nothing's by chance. There are happy accidents. We know that from our friend Bob. But there's no such things as chances. God ordained where Jesus would be born, when he'd be born, how he would die, how he would rise again, and how he would suffer. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to turn to Isaiah 53. And this passage was written by the prophet Isaiah roughly 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And it is the most clear picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you will see 
in my opinion, an Old Testament prophecy. So I want you to listen. Think about what you know about the cross and the suffering of Jesus. Understand that this was written 700 years before Jesus was even born. And tell me what you see and what you hear. No, don't tell me. i got to preach. You can't be yelling up here. But just think about that. Meditate on that and allow it to build your faith. So in verse 1 of Isaiah 53, it says, Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. <clears throat> we have turned every one to his own way. And, to, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So we opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of many people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put on him, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall hear, he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil, divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Your throat gets dry when you read 152 verses before you even preach a message. <clears throat> I didn't realize we put so many verses in there. I want you to think about three things, and we're going to build right out of Isaiah 53 this prophecy of the coming of the Son of God. The first one, we should be ready for a savior where you have to look below the surface. Second, we should have been ready and prepared even today for a savior that had to deal with our sin. And thirdly, we should have been ready and we should be prepared for a savior that had to die and rise again because that's what prophecy <coughs> is getting us ready for. So you'll see the kingdom of God that you have to look with your heart. You can't look in vain ways. You can't look in worldly ways. You can't look in empty ways. It says that Jesus was not dashingly handsome. Did anyone know that the Bible said that? He was nothing to look at. Jesus was not some sort of movie star who hair just waved in the wind, beard had the fresh berry oil in it, and people just wanted to follow him. It didn't happen. People didn't see Jesus and say, oh, that's the guy that must be the Messiah. 
I'm, you know, attracted to him in vain ways. I want to be with the cool guy, the, the outward appearance guy, the good-looking leader. They, they didn't want any of that. They purposed the Son of God to not be very, in human way, attractive as far as it goes with looks. This shows you that God is nothing like us. Listen, if I'm coming to earth as the Son of God, I have the perfect physique. You understand me? I would have said, you better chisel those cheekbones. I would have came in a different way, but that's how we think. We think in vain ways. We think in empty ways. But Jesus purposely made himself have no outward appearance so people wouldn't be drawn to him for the wrong reasons. They would have to see with the heart. Vain, the empty, those who want the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, they wouldn't immediately be drawn to Jesus. But those who were looking for more, those who understood this world was broken, those who understood the system was broken, those who understood the religious leaders at the time, they were out for money and the praise of man, not out to share the ways of God and the love of God and give freedom to people. Instead, they were preaching bondage. When Jesus came on the scene, they said, this is something different. He hangs around with the poor and the weak. He's eating with sinners. He's with the despised and he's with the sick. He has no outward appearance that anyone would be drawn to him. And he speaks the words of life. So the vain and empty would be turned off. But those who were looking for real life to drink from real living and eternal waters would be drawn to Jesus. You know, see, they expected the Messiah to come with all this pomp and circumstance. Not to be born in Bethlehem and to grow up in Nazareth that would be like I'm from Lynn so I can knock Lynn that would be like being born in Lynn and being like I'm the man you'd be like you're from Lynn they used to say that you're from Lynn what good can come out of Lynn that's what they literally said to Jesus this dude's from Nazareth what good can come out of Nazareth Jesus came out of nowhere. He said, I'm not coming with pomp and circumstance. I'm not going to make them kiss the ring. I'm going to bow down and become the greatest servant and lay down my life for them. I'm going to lay down my life for them. You've got to understand the kingdom of God is absolutely different than any kingdom this world is trying to push. Jesus used to heal people. And what happened? He said, don't tell anybody. He said, when you give, don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. No self-promotion. Don't do those things because those have nothing to do with my kingdom. I'm totally different. He grew up like a plant. They didn't even see him coming. That's another thing that would have been different. If you were the son of God, who's waiting 30 years for ministry? I know guys who want to get into ministry, they think they're ready on day one. They jump in like, give me the puppet. I'm ready to do this. I'm like, dude, you don't even have a big idea yet. Jesus waits 30 years, and what, are you doing? what is he doing those 30 years? He's making tables, he's making chairs, he's working a trade. Very humble, very lowly. That's why he can look at us and say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you, it's easy. Because he didn't care about all the empty things this world teaches us through all kinds of different ways to care about. And when you don't care about the praise of man, when you don't care about the glory of man, when you don't care about riches, when you don't care about those things, your life is easy. But when you go after those things, you want to find a good way not to enjoy life, seek what the world has to offer. But when you seek God, I can live a quiet life. 
I can love people. I can care for people. I can visit the one that's sick and not even tell anybody and find the peace and the joy that only God can give. And this is the kind of kingdom that he was pushing, lowly, gentle, and humble. And they didn't like that the Messiah came like this. They said, we want a violent conqueror, not someone who is nonviolent and laying down his life. We don't want someone that turns the other cheek. We want someone that hit him with the left hook, hit him in the rib. We want that kind of savior. He said, no, I'm like a lamb led to the slaughter for our sins, right? Always one of the most freeing things is to take account that it's my sin, your sin that put Jesus on the cross. Not someone else's. There's a freedom. There is a self-awareness that's honest. When I say it's not my neighbor that put Jesus on the cross, it's me, it's us. So we should have been ready first for a savior that was subversive and pushing a subversive kingdom, a humble kingdom that wasn't about the outward. You had to look below the surface, about the inward and about the heart. Secondly, we should have been ready for a savior to deal with our sins. As a minister of the gospel, one of the most important things I don't think I get through a message without, pre- without preaching about sin. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. It's not because I want to be that fire and brimstone. I never compromise the word of God. <laughs> I'm not trying to be that guy. But what do doctors do? When you go in the doctor and something bothering you, how much help is he said, there's nothing wrong, just go home, it's in your head. <laughs> you want to tell what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Why do I feel like this? Why can't I sleep? Why am I angry all the time? Why am I violent? Why am I irritable? Why am I depressed? You know why many reasons we feel that way? It's because of sin. It's because of unrepentant sin. It's because Jesus died to take sin off of our chest. And we need to put it on the cross, but we're labeling it other things. We're labeling our sin as mistakes. Or we're just categorizing, saying it's not sin. You know what that does to a conscience? It destroys it. We need a Savior who outed us on the cross. When you look at the cross, you know what that should say? I'm a sinner that Jesus needed to die for. It should tell us, how serious sin is. Because when we realize how serious sin is, all of a sudden the cross becomes so beautiful to us. You know, I heard an actor, it's actually Mel Gibson. I know he has his issues, but I don't think when people have issues, we should just totally throw them out. I think God's grace can cover them if they repent. But he said something profound when he was making the passion. He said, when I meditated on the suffering of Jesus, I felt like it was healing me. When I meditated on the stripes that Jesus endured for me, it was therapeutic. When I thought about the blood that he shed for me, I was dramatically healed when I just thought about those things. 
There's something inside of all of us that when we sin, it's almost like we want to punish ourselves, and when we're sinned against, we want to punish others. I actually believe that a lot of people that self-harm, cut, hurt themselves, that if they could find the power of looking at what Jesus endured for our sin, that they would be dramatically healed and put to peace. Because there are people that literally, because of all the sin, all the burdens, when they say, I want to hit my head off a wall, there are people that literally hurt themselves. And I know some of my friends growing up, they would always get in fights. They would always get in fights. And after the fight, they would feel so much better. You know why that? Why? Because they were able to punish and be punished. And it released all those feelings they felt from pent-up sin. It released all of those feelings. I even watched some of these UFC fighters. They're so beat up after, and I like the UFC. Judge me as a pastor. I see how you do. And they say after, oh, I'm at rest again. I needed that violence. I needed that violence. You can be healed from all that pent-up aggression, that pent-up violence, that restlessness. Even some of you who might be self-harming and no one even knows about that. Some of you might be cutting yourself and no one even knows about it. When you meditate on the suffering of Jesus on your behalf, you can be set free. Amen? You can be set free. That's why it's such good news. We don't preach sin for people to be condemned. We preach sin so people realize that there's a Savior that dealt with that sin. And the good news is we don't have to experience the wrath of God because Jesus experienced the wrath of God on our behalf. That's what the cross is all about. It's about a Savior. God the Father, God the Son being punished for your and my sins so that we don't have to be punished for them. Do you know how therapeutic that is? I got to think about that almost every day because when you really examine yourself in light of a holy, holy God, you realize how sinful you are. Amen. Can we attest to that? We all have fallen short of the glory of God. No one's clean here. That's what it says in Isaiah 53. We should have been ready for a Savior who was going to be punished for our sin. And why? I think verse 11 gives us some nice, um, a nice view into that when it says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He made us righteous. We can't be in relationship with God if we're not made righteous through the work of Jesus. So this is called the great exchange. Martin Luther calls it this, our filthy sin. We own our sin. It's exchanged by faith on Jesus on the cross. And Jesus' perfect righteousness is exchanged and put upon and imputed to us through faith. Do you guys hear that? When God sees you, he does not see your sin. He sees you perfectly innocent and righteous by faith because of the work of Jesus. And that's why he has the greatest name. That's why I can live 
and say, I'm a child of God, not because of what I've done, because of what Jesus has done. And this is what it says in this chapter, what Jesus endured for us. It says, he was rejected. He was given the title, the man of sorrows. Can you imagine that title given to the Son of God? Man of sorrows. And I need to tell you something. If you're going to follow Jesus, there's going to be sad, sad days. There's going to be a lot of sorrow, and that's why a lot of people turn away. It is not an easy road, but it's a narrow road to follow Jesus. There's persecution, there's letdowns, there's battles. At times, you will be a man, a woman of sorrow. If you love people and want to see them set free by the gospel, you'll see people set free, you'll see people start to follow Jesus, see them fall away, that will break your heart. That will break your heart. When you see someone starting to get set free and they fall back, and when you look at the world and you see that the answer is Christ, and you see people live in torment, that breaks your heart. If you haven't cried at night a few times thinking about lost loved ones in the lost world, then you haven't really thought about the, the freedom that there is in the gospel, and you haven't really allowed yourself to mourn over the brokenness of the world. You know, see, we want to turn our heads, right? That's the easy thing. I just don't want to get involved. It's too hard. The world's too broken. They're too messed up to help. I'm not getting into the ruins. But a real Christian, a true Christian, someone's been born by the Spirit of God, their job is to go into the ruins and bring the gospel of Jesus Christ that people might find hope. And you become a man or woman of sorrow sometimes when you're living among the ruins like Jesus did. But he did that for our sins so we could be accounted righteous because no one's going to stand before God and give a good enough resume that you should get into the heavenly kingdom. I went to church 48 out of 52 times in 2016. Are you kidding me? Let me through the pearly gates. I gave $5 to the Salvation Army when I was going to the Shaw's. How does that not get me in? What's on your resume? That will cause any of us to be find favor with God. Nothing. You know what's on our resume? Resume? That Jesus Christ died on our behalf. And if we put our faith in him, his work is accounted to us as righteousness. We should have been ready for a savior who had to deal with our sin. Because many people looked at Jesus on the cross and they had pity on him. And they said, look at this insane man that thought he was the son of God. They thought he was crazy. Look at this crazy man who said he could offer life and here he is being executed. They thought the kingdom of darkness, the enemies of God, those who crucified him, looked and said, we have won. Look at him. He's being murdered. He's being crucified. He's being mutilated, pierced in his hands and feet. They're even casting lots for his clothes. That's how humiliated and mocked he, he was. How low he was. They said, we have won. Look at the one who claims to be the son of God. What they did not know is that was his greatest moment of victory because he was bringing sin and death to the grave to conquer it and rise again. You missed your amen moment. Don't be so afraid, people. You know, one of my favorite movies to watch around the Christmas uh, season is Chronicles of Narnia. I think they did great on the first one. The rest, I don't know. 
But there's a scene when the lion Ashlyn, what? I knew I was going to get his name wrong. What is it? Aslan. That was just my accent. I said it right. We'll refer to him as the lion from now on in this sermon. The lion was on the table. And it was actually like a creepy scene because you're watching with the kids and they get all these creatures and they're just like, ah, like screaming. Like, oh, shoot, should we be blocking their eyes? What's going on here? But they thought that they had killed the Savior, the King. They were rejoicing in that. They said this is the moment of greatest victory. They shamed him. They shaved his mane. They, you know, when C.S. Lewis was a Christian who, who um, he wrote in the lion to represent Jesus. So as they're rejoicing, as they're partying, as they're shouting with all these victory shouts that they had killed the king and he had been defeated, they didn't realize that was the greatest victory because the grave could not hold someone who was pure and sinless. And the grave could not hold Jesus because he had never sinned. So after three days, he rose again. And this is where you see Trinitarian power. God the Father raised God the Son through the power of God the Holy Spirit, and they defeated our greatest enemy that day, death. Some of you are afraid of death, and I have my days. There's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to be afraid of because Jesus has conquered death. Some of you live in fear of the wrath of God. You, you understand you're a sinner, but you own your sin in the way that you think you can bear it, so you're afraid of the punishment and wrath of God. There's no reason to be afraid anymore because Jesus dealt with your sin on the cross. I need you to hear that and believe that today and be set free. Even those sins that no one knows about, he is faithful as we repent to forgive us. You are set free. No more fear of the punishment of God because that diminishes the work of the cross. Our Savior dealt with death. Our Savior offers eternal life. And that's why it says in this passage, I don't want to miss this. If you look, I believe it's verse 10 or 11. It says, the Lord prolonged his days. He saw the light of life. It talks about the resurrection in Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus even died and rose again. Should build our faith. Now do you know that everyone who has put their faith in Christ and who puts their faith in Christ does not have to taste death, but can have eternal life. When they take their last breath here, they'll be with God in paradise. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He also, there's an interesting verse in there. It says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So when you're thinking through this theologically, you think about God the Father and God the Son, you say, why would God the Father want to crush God the Son? So one answer is to set us free from our sins. The second is to give him the greatest name that will ever be uttered in all of existence. Greater than any name, it says in there. You know about great names? They are no match for the name of Jesus. So if you have been redeemed, if you have been saved, if you have been set free, the name of Jesus is the sweetest, strongest, and best name you've ever heard. How many people, just when you hear that name, you're like, that smells nice. That's good. That's good. That's why I get mad. I got to control my anger when people use the Lord's name in vain. I'm sorry. I'm legalistic on that. It bothers me. 
because that name is so powerful. Don't use that name lightly. In the Old Testament, they wouldn't even say the name. They would write it down because it was that holy. When that name's mentioned for the redeemed, all of a sudden you feel delivered and free. Amen? When that, well, wait, wait, I got it. <laughs> when that name is mentioned, sometimes it leaves us speechless. Like sometimes I'm just overwhelmed and it brings me to tears because I think about how much Christ has saved me and I can't even speak. Sometimes I just want to shout when they say the name of Jesus. I want to shout and I want to say, Woo! Nothing like that name. Come on now. Let's fight it up. That name brings awe and amazement because by that name we were set free that this Savior suffered and died and overcame the grave. So when you think of that birth of that baby this Christmas, when we're singing the rest of these Christmas carols today, why we are so joyful, why we revel in the birth of this child is because this child was born to set us free, live sinless, and do something that none of us could do, save us, even from ourselves. Amen? So let's rejoice in that. Let's prepare our hearts for that. And let's get ready to sing.